0: You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. All right, I want to invite you then into something that we've been doing together as a congregation over the last five weeks, and this will be our last week doing it in this way, and, and that is to join me opening a Bible into Psalm 119. And so... If you don't have a Bible, then I want to encourage you, you'll see a Bible in the, the tray of the chairs in front of you or even underneath the chair you're sitting on now. And, and you'll even, i even encourage you, find your way to a, a device or, or some way, get access to a Bible. Don't be afraid of the table of contents and, and we're going to be in the middle of it, the book of the Psalms. That is the hymns and poems, the language of celebration and lament and, and praise in the Bible. Think of it as it's the song book, the prayer book of the Bible. And we're gonna be in the 119th Psalm, which is the longest of the Psalms. It is the longest, most epic chapter in the entirety of the Bible. It is 176 verses long, and we'll be wrapping up the last three stanzas, that is, the sections. 22 of them, eight verses long, each of them in acrostic style, beginning with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So there are 22 stanzas, eight verses long, each of them beginning with that letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And as you make, yourself, as you make your way to the end of it, we'll, we'll begin in verse 153 and read the last three stanzas, Resh, shin, and Tav. These are the last three letters of the Hebrew alphabet, each of these verses begins with it, and so as this has been for us a celebration of all that, all that God has done for us, all that God is, and all that God communicates to us through His Word, coming to be with us and for us. And so you'll see in the language of the Psalms that we're about to read... A picture here that I want to introduce you to remember or recall from the first couple of weeks, the language you'll hear in the, in the readings here, especially if this is new for you to read through a, a chunk of the Bible, you'll see words repeated, the word law or word or the words uh, commandment or precept. That word, that concept word is in essence the, the theme and totality of Psalm 119. This is a, a, a poem, a hymn for all that God has said to us. And for Christians, that word is made flesh. And so I I pointed here out just kind of a a way to think about this with concentric circles, right? That that there are good and true things that we know, right? Like the sky is blue. Okay, that's true. Uh, You might hear someone say something like, all truth is God's truth. That is that if God has created that which is true, then, then in essence, anything that is true points toward his design and goodness. And so inside of that, though, whereas the Bible tells us that That even the the heavens declare the handiwork of God. Inside of that, God has revealed himself to us in the scripture. That is that the revelation of God's very self we find in the scripture. The the telling of the history of God saving and redeeming his people. And then coming to be with them and for them in Christ. Such that the last of those, the, the most central of those circles, is what we would just simply describe as the word made flesh, John 1 tells us that Jesus came to be with us and for us. And, and he is the fullness of the expression of God's word. So Psalm 119 is not only a reflection upon the truth that God has spoken to us in all of creation, in the scripture, but also even the truth that God speaks to us of who Jesus is, the redemption that he has brought about through him. And so as we read these last three stanzas, where we reflect upon the truth that God gives us and speaks to us and then we reflect upon the truth made flesh for us in Jesus Christ. So beginning in, in verse 143, we'll read this together and wrap up our time in Psalm 119 today. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust, because they do not keep your commandments. Consider How I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Princes, persecute me without cause. But my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word, like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. Excuse me. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. May the Lord bless his word, and even this morning bless his word, about his word. Have you gotten over God's word? Is it a cause for getting dressed up, dancing, celebrating? Did you see all the weeping? Have you gotten over God's word to you? Are you filled with delight and wonder that the God of the universe would reveal himself to you, to us? Or do you yawn because it's simply one more thing that you're entitled to? Do you contemplate having a parade to celebrate God's revelation to you? Or are you so inebriated by other things, lesser things, that they cause you to delight and suck your praise right out of you so that you have nothing left for his word. The language of the psalmist here. I love your precepts. I delight in them. They are the cause of my joy. I praise you. Watching the Kimyal people celebrate God's word for them might be the best illustration of Psalm 119 that I've ever seen. If there's a better one, I just don't know of it. I mean, I don't know, ladies, did you hear the women and their enthusiasm to, to pass on God's word to others? Did you read at the end the story of the people who died? because they wanted to see the word advance and get into the hands of the nations. This short video in my mind is just a glimpse of the prayer that the psalmist has here for us from beginning to end, and it might be the most fitting end to our journey through this chapter. If maybe if someone were to ask you, what is Psalm 119 about? At the very least, I'd hope you would have the picture of a group of people overwhelmed with joy and gladness that they had the New Testament in their own language. If you get nothing else from this series, let those images be burned into your mind. And when someone asks you what Psalm 119 is about, maybe you can't recite it because maybe you didn't do the homework. I don't know. But tell them about what you just saw. Rejoicing, singing, dancing, weeping, celebrating that the God of the universe has brought his word to us. That word is now a lamp and a light for those of us who are in darkness. It is a delight for those of us who live in despair. It is a portion and a refuge for those of us who feel like we're wandering and homeless. Have you gotten over God's Word? Psalm 119 is a hymn concerning all that God grants to us and offers us in His Word and in Christ. It's a song of celebration. It's a song of rejoicing. And even, you see, the language here, as we've seen before, the language of lament, crying out to God to to make things right, to make things new, to redeem that which is broken in light of his promise and his word to do that very thing. And So in these last three stanzas, I think we see something that may sound very familiar. As I shared with you, this will be incredibly routine, and yet I hope that it could also be life-changing. That walking according to God's word would be the most predictable and unsurprising thing about you. We trust God and we trust his word to us as servants who await deliverance. I want to walk us through these three stanzas as we've done over the last five weeks. And then I want to, as best I can, not just simply kind of summarize or or point and highlight some of the things in these passages, but in many ways, wrap up and tie a bow on our time in this psalm. I do so with great uh, fear and trepidation. My uh, my, I've shared with some of you that St. Augustine, when he first wrote his expositions on the Psalms, he didn't at first write one on Psalm 119. And, and his, his reason for that was just that he says, I just can't, I'm not up to it. Every time I read it, he just says, I don't think it can be done, right? And, uh, and so with all due respect to our African father, St. Augustine, here I am humbly throwing a dart in the dark and trying to do so myself. So the third from last stanza, you'll notice, strikes the tone that we saw a few weeks ago, the, the language of affliction, Hear that word again. We saw last week the, the theme of oppression was, was there multiple times, that oppression, affliction, even you see the language in the first two stanzas of persecution. For us are, in this sense, the setting, the backdrop for hoping in and walking according to God's word. So hang on that for just a moment that he calls out to God, verse 153, look on my affliction, deliver me from my affliction on the basis of the fact that I know and trust and don't forget your law. I know what you say to me. Redeem me, he even calls out. And so the the theme of the first stanza, you'll, you'll notice, is the theme of life, the theme of redemption and the theme of, you'll even see the word there, of salvation, that there is some fate which evidently is on the horizon for the psalmist, and he knows his only way out, his only way for relief, his only way to get away from it is if God will intervene. We saw that last week when he declared very militantly, it is time for the Lord to act. And so we trust, as the psalmist here invites us to do, in God and his word. The way we do it in the first stanza, I think, is that God's word to us is our wellspring of life. Second stanza, it's our reason for praise, if you will. And then you'll see in the, the, the closing, very honest confession in the whole psalm is that we await for God's word to come for us as a source of rescue. So that first stanza, we receive God's word to us in order to receive life. Over and over and over again, he has said that ultimately, if, if he doesn't hear from God, if, if God doesn't offer order, right? Now think, our own kind of Western disposition is that we don't like to be told what to do, right? We, whether we realize it or not, the, the kind of the well that we've drunk from is the well of autonomy and individualism. And so anything that is imposed upon us is, is an oppressor. It is something to be thrown off completely, And so anything that has power over us, we're immediately taught to think that it's bad or that if it's not bad, it's going to get bad. Now, I want you to notice those things might be true in some limited sense. We live in a broken, fallen world marred by sin. The effects of sin are everywhere. Sin perverts and destroys everything. But we get a glimpse here about what it would look like to have someone who exercises power and authority over and around us in a way that actually brings about our good and our flourishing. Remember when I told you the language of the law is meant to hearken back to a wandering people in the wilderness, right? So so you don't like to be told what to do, right? But imagine if for, again, 40 years you wandered. Some of you like camping, right? Imagine camping, and being lost for 40 years. How refreshing would it be if someone says, I know the way. I know the way out of this wilderness. Not only that, I know the way to a land flowing with milk and honey. All right, so you have to see the understanding of principles and precepts and laws and testimonies that are spoken to a people who know that they're lost apart from it. I shared this with you a few weeks ago. Haven't you ever in your own life just wished you knew what to do? Haven't you ever cried out and said, I wonder what I should do? I wish I knew the right thing to do next. And here's the thing, many of you that's probably the case you find yourself in this morning. And the psalmist says that to have heard the answer to that prayer, to be wandering in the wilderness and to have heard the voice of God that says I won't leave you I won't forsake you follow me follow in my way Did you catch that Is life It's life Can you even as you're sitting here Can't that doesn't that even begin to resonate with you Have you have you felt even maybe now in times of wandering and restlessness Have you felt in times of confusion and despair, have you felt like the life ebbing out of you? And maybe even now, this morning, you're like, what's the point? And you feel your source of life just drain from you. And the the psalmist says that there is a remedy. There is, quite literally, a redemption in verse 154. Right, that word redemption, redeem, that's the, the language of deliverance out of slavery, the, the bondage and oppression that the Israelites would have felt and, and would have ruminated upon God's deliverance. And, and so therefore they know God and his promise in verse 154 will be our source of redemption, deliverance, verse 155. Salvation, it's our source of mercy and life in 156. It's even, our, it is our ability to stand firm in the midst of persecution and adversity in verse 157. And so therefore, like the Kim Yal people, they sing in verse 159, how I love your precepts. Now give me life according to your steadfast love. Your word is truth. Your righteous rules, we saw this in verse 89, they last forever. There is is no beginning and there is no end to God's word to us. So just stop for a moment before we move to the next stanza. Reflect upon that. Is there something of that language that kind of echoes in the depths of your own soul? Especially maybe if you're in this room and you're not a believer, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, or maybe you're just not sure. I'm especially grateful you're here this morning. In many ways, you are why we exist. And I would even ask you, like, have you ever felt the despair of life? Have you ever looked at your own life and wondered what it means? Have you ever looked at your own days and wondered if they matter? Have you ever looked at yourself in the mirror and wondered if you have any consequence at all? And the psalmist says all of those longings for meaning, for joy, for delight, for redemption and deliverance from the despair that that beats us down in this life, is a word that God has already spoken for for us and to us forever in the past. So friend, whatever despair you bring, the psalmist says in this stanza, say it. It's right and good to say, I am afflicted. I need deliverance. God, plead my cause. God, redeem me. Give me life. Give me life abundantly. And so in this sense, we receive God's word to us in order to receive life. Now, this is important because we saw this in the Gospel of John. This is what might offend some of you who are maybe, maybe you're raised in a more religious background and you're bent as towards being more legalistic and religious, and, and you you like you like order and, and and you like control. And and I just want you to hear the the, the clear the clear word here is that we don't receive God's word to have a better life. We receive God's word to have life, period. Think of it this way. God's word to us doesn't make you or your life better. It makes life possible. Apart from God's word, even from Genesis chapter one, there is nothingness. There is death. So just receive then, what he's telling us is, it's a redemption, it's a salvation, it's the, it's the source of life. That's especially helpful for you because maybe, maybe you think like, maybe you're hoping that, oh, I'll hear something today or I'll encounter something today that will make me better, right? Maybe I'll encounter God and, and I'll get better or I'll do better and my life will be better. And, and friend, you've, you've already missed the point. Apart from encountering God, you are dead, lifeless, Separated from him for all eternity. You don't need a better life. You need a life. And apart from God, we don't have it. So, friend, maybe if you're in this room and, and you're just wanting maybe, maybe the Bible to give your, the answers or you want to use God or, or use the, uh, the Christian convictions or use the church to get something, friend, you're, you're, you've missed the point. Apart from these things, you are dead. And this is an invitation to repent. And even your lifeless, feeble deeds will amount to nothing. If God doesn't intervene and speak words of redemption, deliverance, faithfulness. The next stanza, the second to last, picks up some of those themes right at the very beginning. The theme of persecution. But then it, it serves as kind of a climax for a theme we've seen through the entirety of the Psalms. So just make some observations here with me, maybe, of what you see. And in trial and even in persecution, our source of peace is God's Word to us. And so we love God. And we love His Word to us. We love what God speaks to us. As I say regularly, even, even when God disagrees with us, Right? That's, that ought to, even right there, that ought to be something for you. If, if, if your encounter with Christ and your, and your experience with the Bible hasn't left you to some place where you find deep disagreement, uh, then you probably haven't been paying attention. Right? You're, you're, just, you're just hearing it through a lens, or you're, you're seeing it through a lens and hearing it through a filter. Right, You're hearing what you want to hear. And so the Bible ought to disagree with you from time to time. And therefore, in light of the fact that we know God's word to us is for our good, even when, even when we're rebuked by it, even when we're confronted by it, when it outs us, right? When it opens us and it reveals things about us we wish weren't true. Look what he says in verse 162. I rejoice. I rejoice. I love what's true even if what's true starts as something that's painful. It's like finding, we see here in verse 162, great spoil, great treasure. We saw that last week that it's the word of God to those who have heard it and been changed by it is more valuable than gold and silver. So much that he loves it so much that he, he and here's, here's the last little bit of homework I'll tell for you. See it in verse 164. Seven times a day, I praise you for your righteous rules. So here's my, here's, this is a, a practice that I shared with you. Like I think Psalm 119 is a playbook for how to live according to God's word. And here's the last one. Every, just pick, pick maybe you're, you don't know, like evens. I would, I'll let you out anyway. Every time you look at your watch or a clock and it has an even number on it, stop for a minute, pause, praise God for his rules. Praise God for his word to you. That's how I do it. Every time you see an even number. Obviously not, I mean, if you see an odd number, you know, like, I can't praise God, right? That's not, (laughs) you legalists, stop it, right? But just in general, that's about how, that's about how how often I'm awake, right? From 8, 10, right? 12, 2, 4, 6, 8, right? That's about, never do math out loud. I did that really carefully using my fingers to make sure everyone will see it, but that's about how often like, that's about how, about how many hours in the day I'm ambulatory, right? That I'm, like, functional or useful, okay? Maybe yours is earlier or later. But this is what I would say is one of the ways you can begin to incorporate this is let this not just be an aspirational prayer. What if this were something that you were saying, like the psalmist, and I would share with you, every time, every time the clock hits a, an even number, I stop and go, that's another hour that God has held me up by his word. Why? Because verse 165 great peace have those who love your law. That's profound, isn't it? Nothing can make them stumble. He just got finished telling us that he's been in affliction and needs deliverance. He's been been persecuted. He has adversaries who are after him. In verse 161, those people actually have power They actually have influence behind them. He says, princes even persecute me without cause. Now, we don't know if he's talking at this point. This this might be the part that is written by King David, or at least in the tradition of King David, who even had his own son's turn to try to kill him. But look what he says in the middle of all that. Adversity, persecution, and he says what? How do I respond? I don't stumble. I have peace because I know your word to me. I have your law, I have the path, and I know that if I follow the path, if I stay close to you, I have, verse 166, hope for salvation. I know that your words to me are eternal, and they're good, and they stir in me great love. Even in the midst of persecution. That's a, that's a buzzword. I'm very careful when I when I... And we come across that. A lot of people, um, we, have a, we have an obsession with outrage. And, uh, and, we, and most people, this is some of you might be disgusted by this as well, but most people who call themselves Christian have an obsession with being a martyr or being persecuted. And we imagine, like we have such a low tolerance for pain that we don't even like awkward. Uh, like that's a sin. Like, well, that was awkward. And you're like, well, you should repent of that because you can't do that, right? Much less outright persecution. Right. Think about that. Like, If, if our tolerance for awkward is, is down here, you're going to struggle when someone actually persecutes you. And so I just say, whenever you think on the term, define it three ways. First, define it biblically. When the Bible talks about persecution, it gives us a very clear picture of what it is. Define it historically. How has the New Testament church experienced and understood persecution? And lastly, define it globally. Right. If, if at any moment you're like, I'm persecuted, stop for a minute and go like, is this what the Bible... Is this like the persecution in the Bible? Is this like the persecution in the New Testament church? And is this, is this like the persecution that Christians around the world experience? And if not, please use another word, okay? Maybe you're frustrated, right? Or maybe, maybe it's uncomfortable, okay? But this is a real word, has real meaning, and, and I would hate to water it down from what the Bible, Christian history, and global Christianity understands it to be. But make no mistake about it, it's real. And maybe you're right? Maybe persecution is on the way for the Christian church. A couple of things. One, there is nothing in the history of the church that has ever grown the church more powerfully and effectively than what? Persecution. One of the ways, if you want to spread Christianity, persecute Christians. It's how in Acts chapter six, the gospel went to the nations. Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And they were like, great, let's stay here. Let's actually don't do what Jesus said. Let's stay in Jerusalem. And what happens? Acts chapter 6, persecution breaks out, and the first person killed that we know of in the New Testament was Stephen, stoned. And so what happened? It It scattered the Christians. Now, that's where you would think the book of Acts and the early church would have ended, right? Acts is six chapters long. They killed Stephen, persecuted him. That's the end of it. It goes on for another 20, well, 23 chapters, right? And, and the gospel gets scattered by persecuted, martyred Christians. Lest we forget that the symbol of our movement is a cross. A symbol of torture and suffering. And God gets the last word over all death and pain. So that's the first thing. Friend, if persecution comes, we shouldn't seek it out. We shouldn't, like, I don't think you should go looking for it, right? Dispense with your martyrdom complex. But just know, persecution has never stopped God's work, from working, God's work from being accomplished in the world. And it won't stop despair, affliction, or anything else, God's work from taking place in your life and mine. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Here's the second thing. Notice what he does to respond to the persecution, the real adversity that he was experiencing. He praises God for his rule, and then he has peace because he has love for the law. Now this is interesting because what he doesn't say is, I've had persecution, so let's, let's, let's get a bunch of people together and let's like vanquish the persecutors, right? He doesn't say, let's, let's get together and let's, let's use their own weapons and tactics against them. Oh yeah, they're gonna, they're gonna slander and defame us? i tell you what we do. Let's run a campaign to slander and defame them. Let's get in power over them. You never see it. I mean, just personally, this is this is my own observation. I'm not against a culture war, if you want to be a culture warrior, right? I just don't know any places in the Bible that tell me how to kill my enemy. I find places in the Bible that tell me how to pray for my enemy, to bless those who persecute me, to turn the other cheek when he strikes one. And friend, if you're going to tolerate and endure and thrive in persecution, then you're going to need the prayers of the psalmist here, aren't you? To say, God's word is a firm foundation. It is a sure hope. I love it. And even though, not if, even though persecution and adversity comes, I don't wander. I don't stumble. I can stand firm because I know God's word is sure. His plan to bring about his glory and my good are going to happen. Our hope and assurance isn't that we win against the adversary or the persecutor. Did you catch that? Our hope and assurance is that Jesus has won against the adversary. The accuser has been silenced by Christ. And so therefore, we can have, verse 165, great peace. Not just peace. Great peace. This is a rebuke to me. I don't know how much of the last two years or year and a half have been like classified as great peace? This is a rebuke to me. He says, nothing can make me stumble because I love your law, I hope in your salvation. I love, I love your testimonies exceedingly. Let's be a people that when, not if, when despair, difficulty, affliction, adversity comes, we have a sure hope, we have a firm foundation, we have great peace because we know that the God of the universe and his plan for his glory and our joy is a righteous precept that verse 160 says endures forever. Nothing can shake it. We love it because it's also true. I want to highlight, as I said a minute ago, a theme that actually runs through the entirety of the chapter. You find it at least six different times here that I'll draw attention to, but you see it alluded to even more than that. Maybe twice as many times, but explicitly. Look, verse 29. Put false ways far from me. Far from me. And graciously teach, us, teach me your law. So that which is false isn't something we entertain or think about. We reject, it. we push it away from us. Verse 78, let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with what? With falsehood. So this this picture that that which is false is damaging. It actually causes destruction. Verse 86, all your commandments are sure they persecute me again with falsehood, help me. So here you get, you, the, you see the, the beauty of truth and the, the danger of falsehood. Verse 104. Though your precept, through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. I hate it. Hear it again. Verse 128. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. Just in case we missed it. He wraps us up in 163. I hate and you're like, I don't even know that I know the. I looked this up. I don't even know if I could tell you the difference between hate and abhor. Uh, I think, grammatically speaking, the connotation is abhor is worse than hate. So it's as if he's like building a case and going like, if you haven't hated it, I need you to hate it and abhor falsehood. But what? Love your law. Psalm 119 tells us that we, as people of God, rescued by his promises coming to pass in Christ, are people of truth. And we believe that truth is not an idea or a concept. Truth is a person. The truest thing that was ever spoken, the truest thing that ever happened, is the perfect life, atoning death, and victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's so true that even when I talk about it, right, even when I make mention that the Redeemer lives, That Jesus has come to be with us and forced to bear our burdens and now there is no condemnation because of Christ Jesus. There's something so true about that that if you've heard it and it's resonated deeply inside of you, it rattles something down in your soul, doesn't it? You can't hear it without thinking, like without responding in some visceral way. Truth is a person. And that means that the truth of God's word Causes us, and this is strong here, the psalmist invites us to consider, to hate falsehood. Hate it. We hate it. Why? Because that which is false is antithetical. It runs counter to what God has done for us in Christ, it runs counter to who God is and what He declares to us in Scripture and the finished work of Christ. And so the truth of God's word causes us to hate falsehood. This is a weird thing for me to ask you to do. But in light of Psalm 119, I think we're supposed to do this. Ask God to help you hate lies. Especially if you're in the room, maybe, maybe you're walking around with, like, I res- like this resonates with me, like you're a walking imposter syndrome, right? You're terrified that people would find out who you are. You're terrified people would find out that you're actually a failure, and you're 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 trying to to con everyone into thinking you're something better than you are. Friend, join me in asking God to help us hate that, hate it, and to love what is true. To love what is true. After all, the lie is is a cheap imitation that fades. It needs more lies to cover it up. And yet that which is true endures forever. And so the lie that maybe you can be good enough or that that you can somehow achieve enough, that you can somehow win your own contentment and joy in this world, let that lie be something on the list of things you hate. Because the truth is better. That Jesus is a friend of sinners. Sinners. He welcomes the weak. He welcomes the failure. You're not good enough? Sweet. That makes you friends with Jesus. You think you're good enough? You're in opposition. The Bible says that God opposes the proud, but He gives mercy to the humble. You're in opposition to all that God means to introduce Himself to you to be. Dispense with the lie, embrace the truth. The Lord is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. He gives grace to the humble. And so therefore we love that which is true. This is going to be a drive-by shooting, but this just means that you have to hate anything that doesn't look like truth. Look, it's no coincidence that conspiracy theories come and rise in times where we're desperate, in times where we're uncertain, because we just want answers, don't we? Right? But what does the psalmist say? I love what's true. And if it's false, even if it smells like it might not be completely true, what do we do? Keep it far from me. Falsehood and lies are the work of the adversary, Satan, and his demons. We are the people of the truth. And so, in a time where it seems like our, our public discourse is not marked by much truth, right? Many of you wonder, like, why, why I don't talk about partisan politics enough or, or much, right? I probably don't wave the flag. And it's because they're all liars. N- I, I just haven't—if you have some favorite politician that's like, that comes out and says, you know what, the thing I said last month was wrong, and I want to apologize, and I want to retract that statement— uh, and I just hope you'll forgive me. Like, if you'll send me that viral, whatever, like, send me that. I wanna know that. But until that's the case, then, then friend, your testimony about the risen Christ is too valuable for you to flirt with falsehood. There are people in your family, there are people on your Facebook feed, there are people in your neighborhood, in our city, and in the world that need to hear the truth of the resurrected Lord. Do not in any way put that at risk. Your testimony to the risen Christ is too valuable. Don't flirt with falsehood. Hate it. Friend, no one has ever been condemned and sent to hell for being gullible or duped. But they are condemned to hell for lying. So dispense with the fear of being duped. So maybe you get duped, right? Oops. Like of all the knowledge in the universe right, of all of it, like, well, I mean, what, what is that, you missed out on what, a fraction? Like, don't worry about it. You can be duped, but we're not, we're called to, to love truth, and we don't even flirt with or think about or mess with or entertain falsehood, because it's an affront to the eternal, everlasting truth that God, in his eternal loving kindness, his steadfast love, verse 139 says, has set out to save us, redeem us, and bring us back to himself. And everything else fades away. Last stanza. Notice the last stanza is in many ways not a climax, but a closing that's deeply intimate. Did you catch it? Let my cry come before you. Let my plea come before you. My lips pour forth praise. My tongue will sing of your word. Let your hand be ready to help me. I long for your salvation. Let my soul live and praise you. So th- these are a-, a form of, we saw this several weeks ago, a form of, it's called justive, but it's a, a form of imperative. I don't know if you notice. he's actually like kind of telling God what to do. What a brazen thing to do. But in light of God's word, he's able to tell God what to do, right? God, verse 169, listen to me. Let my cry come before you. Verse 170, let my plea come before you. In fact, the the only things that that he does that he's not longing for are in verse 174 and 176. They're the only two regular verbs. Did you hear it? One, I long, right? Before that, it's just let this happen, let this happen, let this happen, right? And then verse 174, I long for your salvation. Your law is my delight. And then verse 176, the last statement in the entirety of this reflection on God's word, he says, I've gone astray like a sheep, like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. We live in glad dependence upon God and his word. That language of a sheep and a shepherd, or excuse me, the shepherd is implied, that language of of sheep and then the flock is language that's throughout the entirety of the Bible. You find it even the prophets who speak words of rebuke for those of the false shepherds who had misled God's people and hadn't cared for God's people according to his word. And the cry of his heart, having meditated on the goodness of God and his word to us, is what? God I'm like a lost sheep. That's crushing, isn't it? Right? Like, wouldn't you love it if you said, like, God, I'm like a tiger. Right? Like, I'm like a I'm like a snake. Or I don't know, whatever you, whatever cool animal you think, right? What a profound encounter with the living God. To see God, know God, and say, God, I'm like a sheep. I'm like a sheep. What do sheep need? They, need? they need a shepherd and they need a flock. And it's as if to say, like, if I don't stay with your people under your care, I'm a mess. And don't you love his response? It gives another imperative based on the fact that he is a sheep, a lost sheep. He doesn't say, you know, I'll come get you, right? Like, just shout louder, Lord, and I'll find you. Do did you, did you see what he says? I've, I've gone like a lost sheep. God, you come seek me. God, you're going to have to come find me. I love this. I share with this with you as regularly as possible that all of world religions are how to get to God. All the things you need to do to get to God, to earn the approval of God, to get and find God. One of the movements of the last couple of decades is what the, described as the seeker sensitive church. And in that sense, the, the idea is that if people who are looking for God might might encounter the church and find Him, and I, I love that, but it's just backward. We are a seeker-sensitive church. It's just that we don't think we're the seekers; we think He's the seeker. He's chasing us. We're the we're the ones that need to be run down from behind. And what a powerful and comforting word to to be able to say to God, I'm like a wandering sheep. I don't know where to go. I I tend to wander off and destroy my own way. God, I need you to come and find me because I remember that that's what you promised you would do. You would be our God. We would be your people. Let me give you a couple of just practical. This is it. If I were to sum up Psalm 119, I'm putting it in kind of two different ways. Here it is, practical summary of Psalm 119. Read, pray, and meditate upon your Bible. Boom, right there. Grand finale. The pastor just stood in front of a bunch of people and told them to read their Bible. Yay. That's it. It's not flashy. It's not sexy. It's not catchy. And yet what we find here is 22 stanzas that say, this is a source of joy to abide in the Father and walk according to his word. That's it. So friend, read your Bible more. Read more of it. Read it more often. Read it with more people. Memorize more of it. Think about it more, right? Write it more. Paint it. I don't care what, what whatever it ta- More. That's it. More. And therefore, he'll tell us you get more light, more delight, Right? more comfort, more assurance, all of that. So that's it, more. Let's be a people that read the Bible more. It's that simple. It's the source of life. I love Spurgeon's quote here. Obviously, you could apply it to, he was speaking to some, some at this point, men who were going to come become pastors. And obviously, you could like apply it to anyone who's not a young man. But he says, young men, save your spare hours to study the Bible. I love that. Like, just ask yourself, what do you do with your spare hours? Spurgeon says, save your spare hours to study the Bible. And, you, and maybe you'd be like, you know what? I don't have any spare hours. I'm busy. I'm a big deal, right? Okay, fine. He says, well, then steal them from your sleep if you can't get them hours." I love that. What a beautiful picture. I'm going to steal them from sleep so that I could subject these hours to God's purpose for my life. But here, underneath the surface, this. This shapes us and changes us. As I tell you, go read the Bible, you probably think, oh no, one more thing to do. But friend, you haven't heard the reflection of Psalm 119. You don't don't have to read the Bible. You get to hear from the God of creation. Think about that for just a minute. You don't have to read the Bible. You get to hear from God. You can, isn't that amazing? The God of the universe would speak to you. The God of the universe wants to grant comfort to you in the way that only you need it. The God of the universe wants to grant hope to the way that only you experience hopelessness. Intimately, God wants to speak to you, to meet with you. He wants to have communion with you. And so therefore, he seeks us, right? As wandering sheep, and he speaks words of Comfort, not of condemnation, but of acceptance and approval. You don't have to do that. You get to. Because after all, if the definitive word that God speaks to us is in Christ, the good news of who he is, think of it this way: you don't have to hear the gospel. You get to. You get to hear the good news. That sin, death, hell, and the grave do not get the last word. Christ does. And what would have to be true of you to go like, oh, not again? right? Like, oh, I have, do I have, do I have to hear this again? But friend, we get to meet with God. He has crossed time and eternity to meet with us in Christ so that now we get to boldly approach the throne. I love the psalm. He gets to demand, God, get me out of here. It's time for you to act. Boy, that's, that's, I don't know what your friends are allowed to talk to you that way, right? Like this, that, that list, that list shortened my life. It starts with my wife and ends with my wife. That's, right? Like, you better. I'm like, yeah, okay, right? (laughs) But did did you hear the language of the psalmist? God, hear me. Listen to me. Deliver me. Redeem me. Friend, he has the ability and permission to approach God with those demands because he has heard from God. He gets to hear the promises that when we call out to him, he will hear. He will never forsake us. Here's the last little bit. Think of this way, the word versus the world. That, that phrase that I, I told you was over there and in there a, do, a dozen times or more, that phrase, according to, did you catch how many it was Time It was like in the second stanza several times. According to, even a couple times in the beginning of the third stanza that we read today. Think of it this way. Think of how you define and understand and interpret things according to the world. Think of what's expected of you. Think of what's praised. Think of what's admired. Think of what gets on the news. Think of what makes you a celebrity. Think of what what makes you influential or famous. Think of those things. And then now think of your life according to God's word. What makes you valuable? What makes you loved? What makes you approved of what makes you accepted the psalmist invites us to as a church to regularly think about things according to over and over again according to the character and nature of god versus according to anything else and so we are people who see and experience life verse 159 live life according to god's steadfast love his promise to deliver us in Christ, His promise to never leave us or forsake us, and we do that in a way that is prophetic, and anti, and like, and like countercultural, isn't it? As opposed to think about what it would look like to live according to the world. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, vengeance, revenge. Friend, we are invited to consider what it would be like to see all of the things that we experience in life, not according to the way the world defines it or understands it, but with the way that the Word defines it. You don't have to live by this. You get to live by Jesus. You get to see the world and interpret it through Jesus. Remember I told you, I'll wrap up on this, I told you one of the best ways to reflect on Psalm 119 is to every place where it mentions the word, precept, commandment, to insert some sort of language for Jesus, right? The Son of God, Son of Man, Jesus, right? So beginning in verse 153, look on my affliction and deliver me. For what? I do not forget Jesus. Plead my cause and redeem me. Giving, give me life according to Jesus. All right, do you hear it? stop for a minute and let's do this according to the war according to the world and not the word. Verse 155. Or excuse me, verse 156, great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to how good I am. Many are my persecutors and adversaries, but I don't swerve from the golden rule. Consider how I love the world. Give me life according to to my achievement. You get it? Friend, we're invited to, we get to see the world through the lens of Christ. Princes persecute me without cause, even the prince of demons, but my heart stands, what? In awe of Christ. I rejoice in Christ, like one who finds great spoil. I hate falsehood, but I love Jesus. Do you hear it? I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Now please seek your servant, for I do not forget Jesus. We don't have to walk according to the word. We don't have to do that. We get to. We get to see all of the world in light of the word rather than vice versa. It's the reason we sing. It's the reason we respond how we do. Think of it this way. The Word forms us into servants, dependently longing for a certain rescue. The world turns us into consumers and critics, complainers wandering and wanting to go back into slavery. The Word lets us see the promise of God's deliverance. The world wants us to be blind to it. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate that word come flesh I'll give you the language that Colossians 3 tells us. He says, "Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him." Did you catch that? The way we're able to sing as we're going to be invited to do in just one moment has nothing to do with how good you can hold a tune. Thank God, right? We sing because his word of redemption has settled into us. I love that word, deeply. You can't help but sing. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. A tangible pointer and picture that the God of the universe has come to take upon flesh. That the word he has spoken to us is the word of a piece of bread. Do you hear it? satisfying to our hunger. The word that God has spoken to us, the word that dwells in us and sinks into us richly is like a sip of juice. Satisfies our thirst. May we hear and receive God's word and respond. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that you have not left us in wandering, but you have come to us to speak to us. Uh, God, I'm in awe of your word, even uh, incredibly humbled uh, that that I should even try to put your words into into words by myself. And I, I pray that even now you would allow all that is your word and eternal to last and to give us steadfastness and peace and anything else, my words or any other words that that would take away from that? Would you just allow them to disappear? Allow, allow them to be forgotten? When we, when we close our ears or when we silence our, ourselves long enough to hear your word, it's, it's the most satisfying and powerful thing we can imagine. So might right now, even in this room, might you speak words of comfort For those of us feeling the bondage of sin, would you speak words of grace and forgiveness deep into our soul? For those of us feeling despair and condemnation, would you you speak words of affirmation and approval and acceptance because of Christ's perfect sacrifice? For those of us who feel hopeless, would you begin to speak words of kindness and comfort? Father, silence all the things in our own lives that we might hear very clearly the beauty of Christ and the word that you've spoken to us. Might it be abundant life to us as we reflect upon it, we meditate upon it, and as we're changed by it. In Jesus' name, amen.